Um, I wanted to cover um, uh, a lot more about the black church, but I also wanted to cover the Salvation Army um, because that's a, a fairly unique organization. And I got to a point where I just had so many diverse topics to cover. And I thought, well, I'll just do this presentation half on the Salvation Army and about the other half is on the Church of God in Christ. And they don't go together. They happen to be in the same presentation together, but that's the only reason is just time constraints. Um, so we're going to start with the Salvation Army. And of course, this symbol, I'm sure, is familiar to many, many, many people. Um, the Church of God in Christ, the seal that, that is represented up there, may not be as familiar uh, to some. Uh, it, it shows a sheaf of wheat, a large sheaf of wheat, the harvest, essentially. Um, and it, the diagonal lines in the back, so that the sheaf of wheat represents the many members of the body of Christ gathered into one group. And the, the diagonal lines in the back represent rain uh, because they, this is a Pentecostal church. And so they wanted their seal to show the, the, you know, the rain coming down from heaven, the Holy Spirit being poured out. So starting with the Salvation Army. This is a Protestant Christian church and an international charitable organization headquartered in London, England. Coming out of the Wesleyan or Methodist movement and the holiness movements, the army was founded in 1865 as the East London Christian Mission in England. And the founders are William Booth. Uh, he was a Methodist preacher and his wife, Catherine, and again, they started up in 1865. The mission started as a street ministry to alcoholics, morphine addicts, prostitutes, and other undesirables, unwelcome in polite Christian society. These would certainly be people who would never set foot inside uh, any church, whether it was a nonconformist church like the Methodists, or certainly not the Church of England. So William Booth preached his first sermon outside the Blind Beggar Tavern in 1865. And although the original building that he preached in front of is not actually in existence, it was later rebuilt and it still exists as a tavern and it's still called the Blind Beggar. And it actually has roots going back to the Middle Ages. So there's been some kind of a tavern or pub on this site, uh, rather, this site for many centuries. Within 10 years, the organization had over a thousand volunteers and evangelists ministering throughout London and other parts of Great Britain. The name the Salvation Army developed from an incident that occurred in May of 1878. William Booth was dictating a letter to his secretary, George Scott Railton. Railton was a Scottish man who would later would go on to uh, extend the ministry to the United States and other countries. But at this time, he was serving as Booth's secretary. And Booth said, we are a volunteer army. Bramwell Booth, William's son, heard his father and said, Volunteer? I'm no volunteer. I'm a regular. So, you know, they're kind of using this militaristic 
you know, terminology to express their, the parts that they play in this organization. Railton was instructed to cross out the word volunteer and substitute the word salvation. So this is not a volunteer army any longer. It is the salvation army. And so Booth intentionally modeled his organization after the military. It has its own flag or colors and its own hymns, often with words set to popular folk tunes sung in the pubs. So what they did was, since they were doing street ministry and they were ministering to people outside pubs, they would take these drinking songs and write new lyrics for them so that the people they're trying to convert, they could sing along to these songs. They knew the tunes, but the new lyrics, the new words of the songs would have a salvation message. And the hope was people would sing these songs and it would be a factor in their coming to Christ. In 1878, Booth reorganized the mission along military lines. So he adopted the hierarchical structure of the British Army. And, you know, there's generals, there's captains, and so on. So Booth becomes the first general. And he, again, he's introducing this military structure into this organization. Determined to wage war against the evils of poverty and religious indifference, with military efficiency, Booth modeled his Methodist sect after the British Army, labeling uniformed ministers as officers and new members as recruits. The Christian mission, in which women were given ranks equal with men, launched campaigns into London's most forsaken neighborhoods. Women were ministering and preaching right alongside men. Uh, women had equal status with men in this organization in terms of the, the street ministries. Soup kitchens were the first in a long line of various projects designed to provide physical and spiritual assistance to the destitute. But in the early years, many in Britain were critical of the Christian mission and its tactics, and the members were often subjected to fines and imprisonment as breakers of the peace. Okay, so Booth and the other soldiers in God's army would wear the army's own uniform for meetings and ministry work. And there you can see a uh, portrait of, um, uh, it's a married couple. Uh, they had gotten married in the Salvation Army. The Salvation Army does marry people. Um, and they're wearing their Salvation Army uniforms as they appeared in England in 1890. Um, and uh, so Booth is now the general. He's got his officers. Uh, members uh, were known as soldiers and sometimes called salvationists. So we'll come across that word frequently, salvationists. Having a lot of trouble with the. Uh... 
Okay, let's try this again. I'm sorry? Oh, okay. Okay. So the Salvation Army allowed women to preach. Again, that's unusual for these times. And due to the circumstances of the people reached by the army, it was felt that the ministry needed to provide converts with their own church where they would feel accepted. Remember, they're ministering to the down-and-outers, the people who wouldn't set foot in a typical church of that day. So much like what D.L. Moody did and the YMCA movement in Chicago, they were like, well, we've converted these people to Christ. They don't want to go to your standard you know, Protestant evangelical church. So we'll start our own church where they feel comfortable. So the Salvation Army was and is a church and conducts worship services at its center, sometimes called temples or citadels. And many of you know that here in Dayton, the Salvation Army has the Crocs Center, uh, and you can actually attend church services at the Crocs Center. So today, a typical Salvation Army church service is like services at many evangelical churches. However, a big difference, very big difference uh, with the Salvation Army and other churches is that they do not practice baptism or the Lord's Supper. According to a recent edition of the Army's Handbook, the Salvation Army is a permanent witness to the church as to the possibility and practicability of sanctification without formal sacraments. Through the experience of holiness, the believer has direct communion with God through the spiritual presence of Christ in the heart. The real presence of Christ is mediated through sanctification to the believer apart from outward forms. So in all other respects, their, you know, their doctrines, Orthodox, Protestant, Evangelical, Christian theology, but in practice, they do not observe the Lord's Supper and baptism. The handbook continues, this ongoing commitment to model the conviction that no particular outward observance is necessary to inward grace demonstrates obedience to a specific calling to a distinctive and prophetic role within the church. Early in our history, the Salvation Army was led of God not to observe specific sacraments, that is, baptism and the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion, as prescribed rituals. In this, we remind ourselves and others of the danger of trusting in the external rather than the grace it signifies or points to, and are a witness to the evidence and availability of that grace in all of human life. Why do you think they might not want to uh, practice or observe the Lord's Supper. Could it be that maybe due to the fact that they're ministering to a lot of alcoholics, they don't want to be having a, 
a service that includes, you know, drinking from a cup of wine. So that could be one, you know, uh, one reason why. And we'll, we'll get to questions at the end. The Salvation Army does not require anyone attending a service to be a member of the, the Army in any capacity as a soldier, adherent, or officer. Services in Salvation Army churches feature a variety of activities, many of which are common to most evangelical church services. And describing the, how a typical Salvation Army church service would be conducted, um, you know, we're, we're focusing on the service as it is in the present day. So today, if you were, attend, uh, if you were to attend a Salvation Army service, uh, you would be greeted by the minister who they would call the officer. And then there would be worship songs and hymns. And in, there are many contemporary services that the Army conducts. Uh, they use popular Christian music that many of us would recognize as coming from Hillsong or Vineyard or other you know, popular contemporary Christian uh, ministries that write new songs. And they sing those along with Salvation Army hymns. Next, there is a scripture reading from the Bible, and then prayers are led by the officer leading the service. Depending on demand, a Sunday school may be run in another room. A collection is held to receive a financial offering in what they call a cartridge envelope. You know, so again, going along with the militaristic theme, you know, you need, you need to shore up the weapons that the Army has, what's part of its arsenal, its money to continue the work of the Army. And sometimes they refer to this as tithes and offerings. They then sing the doxology, and then the officer gives a sermon based on the Bible reading, and the service concludes with a benediction. So there's a lot there that seems pretty, pretty typical of what you would find in many evangelical services, but of course, they're not ever going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, nor are they going to baptize anyone. One thing that is fairly different is something called the mercy seat. And here is a picture from a contemporary um, Salvation Army church. Um, it's simply a wooden bench, and it's kind of you know set down from the, the pulpit. Um, for them, this symbolizes God's call to his people, and it is a place for commitment and communion with God, again, not the Lord's Supper, and it's available for anyone to kneel at in prayer. And so much like the practice of many evangelical churches to have an altar call uh, in the Salvation Army churches, you know, they're going to have a sim similar call, evangelistic call to anyone attending the service who is not a Christian to come up to the mercy seat and come to Christ. Now, as the Salvation Army grew rapidly in the late 19th century, it generated opposition in England. Opponents, grouped under the name of the Skeleton Army, <laughs> disrupted Salvation Army meetings and gatherings with tactics such as throwing rocks, bones, rats, and tar, as well as physical assaults on members of the army. And much of this was led by pub owners who were losing business because of the army's opposition to alcohol, 
and its targeting of the frequenters of saloons and public houses. As the popularity of the organization grew, and Salvationists worked the streets of London attempting to convert individuals, they were sometimes confronted by unruly crowds, uh, not just the pub owners. I mean, there were often big crowds. So the Fries, who were a family of musicians from Alderbury in Wiltshire, another part of England, began working with the army as their bodyguards and played music to distract the crowds. In 1891, a Salvation Army band attempted to parade and play music in Eastbourne, Sussex, England. However, their parade was deemed illegal by the authorities and it resulted in the arrest of nine Salvationists. Unperturbed, the army continued to parade in defiance of the law with the aim of gathering support for a change in legislation. I'm sure many of us have heard of Salvation Army bands. I've never seen one actually play, but they are still in existence, as we'll see. Now, at this time, uh, within the next few months, uh, the situation in ex es sorry, Sussex escalated to such an extent that there were riots, and mounted police had to be called in from surrounding areas to try to maintain order. But the tradition of having musicians available continued and eventually grew into standard brass bands. And these are still seen in public at army campaigns as well as at other festivals, parades, and at Christmas. And so in this portrayal you see on the left, top left, is an old photograph from the Nuneaton Salvation Army Band in Warwickshire, England from 1907. Uh, brass instruments and drums. There's one woman in the group, the rest are men. Some Salvation Army bands consist of entirely of women. Uh, it just depended on what, who was available and what instruments they could play. And then in the lower right, you can see a picture of the Salvations, Salvation Army's International Staff Band celebrating its 120th anniversary in London, and they're essentially parading in front of Buckingham Palace in 2011. So um, as we know, the Salvation Army has only continued to grow. Uh, it continues to be headquartered in England, and periodically they do hold very large gatherings, and the bands have gotten enormous, some of them. In 1880, the Salvation Army started work in three other countries, Australia, Ireland, and the United States. And George Scott Railton, as we had mentioned earlier, Scottish man, uh, took a team and started work in Harry Hill's Variety Theater in New York on March 14, 1880. The first notable convert was Ash Barrel Jimmy, who had so many convictions for drunkenness that the judge sentenced him to attend the Salvation Army. <laughs> the Corps in New York was founded as a result of Jimmy's rehabilitation. Sometimes they call their churches corps, again, using the army, you know, um, terminology. But it was not always an officer of the Salvation Army who started the Salvation Army in a new country. 
Sometimes salvationists emigrated to countries and started operating as the Salvation Army on their own authority. So when the first official officers arrived in Australia and the United States, they found groups of Salvationists already waiting for them and combined their efforts. The Army's organized social work began in Australia on December 8, 1883 with the establishment of a home for ex-convicts. That's largely what Australia started off being. And then later Salvationists were sent to Canada, Europe, Africa, and Asian nations in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Today, the Salvation Army reports a worldwide membership of over 1.7 million Salvationists. It is present in 133 countries, running charity shops, operating shelters for the homeless, and providing disaster and war relief and humanitarian aid to developing countries. And it certainly stands out as a church that is much a parachurch as it is a church. You know, typically these days, when I think of the Salvation Army, I think of this picture. Uh, obviously, this is from current times. Uh, especially at Christmas, you see Salvation Army volunteers with the red kettles outside of many stores, often grocery stores, ringing a bell, soliciting donations. They do a lot of work at Christmas time in the United States, and I'm sure in many other countries as well. Uh, Christmas is a big time to extend those charitable efforts to people in need. Okay, so that concludes what I have about the Salvation Army, and now we're really gonna switch gears. And we're gonna talk about uh, developments in Pentecostal churches, and in particular in this talk, we're gonna focus on the Church of God in Christ. Um, now, I'm gonna just recap a little bit of what we've covered before with Pentecostal churches. So we've already covered the early developments of the Pentecostal movement in the US. Charles Fox Parham in the Midwest and William Seymour in California were early leaders. Pentecostal groups came into existence in other parts of the US, sometimes spontaneously, and sometimes due to visitors to the Azusa Street Revival, which was led by Seymour, and they brought their experiences back home to their churches. But not all churches welcomed back their members who had experienced an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. During the period of 1906 to 1924, Pentecostals defied U.S. social, cultural, and political norms of the time that called for racial segregation and the enactment of Jim Crow laws. So these are the laws mandating that blacks and whites must uh, be served in different parts of restaurants or maybe blacks could not be served in certain restaurants at all. Hotels, um, water fountains, restrooms, any really any public facility, especially in the southern states, were segregated by race. And the laws, that, uh, the segregation laws that um, codified this uh, were called the Jim Crow laws. Now, the Church of God in Christ, or Kojic for short, the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. Remember, we've talked about Church of God, Anderson, Indiana. And now there's Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. We've talked about them to some extent. 
Um, and we do have to add in those place names because the church of God, you know, everybody wants their church to be called the church of God. <laughs> but that gets confusing. <laughs> then there's the Pentecostal Holiness Church and the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World. And these were all interracial denominations before the 1920s. Remember, Church of God Anderson, Indiana, made a particular practice of deliberately reaching out to both blacks and whites. Now, these groups, uh, especially in the South, were under great pressure to conform to segregation. And although there were laws in the South that codified racial segregation, in the North, um, you know, I'm not really sure because I haven't studied it that much, but uh, I don't know if it was so much legislation as it was simply cultural norms that segregation would be practiced in public spaces. Um, really, this type of segregation was prevalent throughout the entire country. Um, but ultimately, North American Pentecostalism would divide into white and black branches. Though it never entirely disappeared, interracial worship within Pentecostalism would not reemerge as a widespread practice until after the civil rights movement of the 1960s. We're going to focus on the Church of God in Christ, which was formed in 1897 by a group of disfellowshipped Baptists, most notably Charles Price Jones, uh, who lived from 1865 to 1949, and Charles Harrison Mason, lived 1864 to 1961. These two ministers were licensed Baptist ministers preaching in Mississippi who began preaching and teaching a Wesleyan doctrine of Christian perfection or entire sanctification as a second work of grace to their Baptist congregants. Where have we heard this before? This is what the holiness preachers, the pre-Pentecostals, if you want to think of them that way, this is what the uh, holiness preachers have been preaching and these Baptist preachers have picked this up. And this is not standard Baptist doctrine that they're preaching. <clears throat> Mason was influenced by the testimony of the Methodist evangelist Amanda Berry Smith, one of the most widely respected holiness evangelists of the 19th century. And we've mentioned her before. And here is a picture. I'm not sure when it was taken. Uh, it, it was a photograph, but the photograph wasn't good, and somebody, I think, colorized it, um, made it look better, and uh, you can find this on uh, Kojic websites. So uh, Smith's life story, she wrote her autobiography. Uh, this was read by many black Americans and led many into the holiness movement, including Mason. He testified to receiving entire sanctification after reading her autobiography in 1893. Mason was born September 8, 1866, near Memphis, Tennessee. His parents, Jerry and Eliza Mason, had been formerly enslaved and were sharecroppers in Tennessee. When Charles was 12 years old, his family moved to Plumerville, Arkansas due to a yellow fever epidemic that struck the Memphis area. And while in Arkansas, the Masons lived and worked as sharecroppers on the John Watson plantation. 
Jerry, incapacitated with yellow fever, passed in 1879, and the following year, Charles, at the age of 14, was diagnosed with tuberculosis. And this was a disease that would kill and did kill many, many people, and so he was certainly in danger of passing away from this. <laughs> the Masons were Baptist and attended missionary Baptist churches. Since there was no medical treatment available for blacks where Charles lived, the only remedies were folk medicine and prayer. Charles's family and church prayed for him, and he recovered. Later, Charles would say that he believed God had healed him for the express purpose of alerting him to his spiritual duty and that God had called him into full-time ministry from then on. In 1893, at the age of 27, Mason began to preach on a local license from the Mount Gale Missionary Baptist Church in Preston, Arkansas. On November 1, 1893, Mason entered the Arkansas Baptist College, a historically black college, but later transferred to the Minister's Institute at the college and graduated in 1895. So although he had no formal education as a child, he was able to go to a black college and get some formal education and training. In June 1896, Mason, C.P. Jones, and other black ministers conducted a revival, preaching the message of sanctification and holiness that eventually led to their expulsion from the local Baptist Association. So, in 1897, Mason and Jones formed a new fellowship of churches named simply Church of God. Many holiness Christian groups and fellowships forming at the time wanted biblical names for their local churches and fellowships, such as Church of God, Church of Christ, or Church of the Living God. They rejected denominational names such as Baptist, Methodist, Episcopal, and so on. Since so many new holiness groups and fellowships were forming that used the name Church of God, C.H. Mason sought a name to distinguish his holiness group from others, and thus came the name the Church of God in Christ. Mason believed that this name, taken from 1 Thessalonians 2.14, was divinely revealed and biblically inspired. And the Kojic Church... uh, I should say it really, it's a deno- it becomes a denomination. They began to develop congregations throughout the southern U.S. set up with an Episcopal structure. So in other words, they have a structure that's similar to how Episcopal churches are set up. They have the denominational organization that oversees everything, and then different parts of the country are divided up into different segments. They didn't call them dioceses as the Episcopal church does, Um, they talked about jurisdictions. Within each jurisdiction, you would have a bishop, an overseer. But this is basically an Episcopal form of church governance. They started off with C.P. Jones. He was uh, elected the general overseer. Mason was selected as overseer of Tennessee. And another black minister, J.A. Jeter, was selected as overseer of Arkansas. After testifying to being sanctified, Members of the church referred to themselves as saints, believing that they were set apart to live a daily life of Christian holiness in word and deeds. 
By 1906, the denomination had grown to nearly 100 congregations in three states. Now, desiring to learn more about the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, Mason Jeter and another minister, D.J. Young, were appointed as a committee by C.P. Jones to investigate reports about the Azusa Street Revival. Jones was acquainted with William Seymour, as Seymour's travels had led him to visit with many holiness preachers. If you recall from when we talked about William Seymour, he was itinerant for a long time. He was traveling around the country before he ended up in California. Uh, he traveled around and uh, went to all kinds of different churches, met different ministers. So Mason went to Los Angeles and stayed for five weeks. And during his visit, he received the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. <clears throat> Mason later testified of his experience at the revival. The Spirit came upon the saints and upon me. Then I gave up for the Lord to have his way within me. So there came a wave of glory into me, and all of my being was filled with the glory of the Lord. So when he had gotten me straight on my feet, there came a light which enveloped my entire being above the brightness of the sun. When I opened my mouth to say glory, a flame touched my tongue which ran down me. My language changed, and no word could I speak in my own tongue. Oh, I was filled with the glory of the Lord. My soul was then satisfied. Soon after his experience in Los Angeles, he returned to Mississippi, preaching the new Pentecostal teachings on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But he found that C.P. Jones, the general overseer of the group, was opposed to it. After much debate at the general convocation in June of 1907, Mason was expelled from the church. Later in, in November 1907, he established a new Pentecostal church in Memphis, Tennessee. He was elected the general overseer of this group and won the legal rights to the name and charter of the Church of God in Christ, or Kojic, after 15 years of conflict. So he ended up having to go to court over it. He commissioned traveling evangelists to spread Kojic's message, establishing working partnerships with other ministries and denominations. And a special focus was on the masses of black Americans headed for work in northern cities in the Great Migration. He also founded two churches, Temple Church of God in Christ and St. Paul's Church of God in Christ. But he was not exclusive in his ministry. He preached in, in Kojic and non-Kojic churches alike. And he also preached international churches, or rather, I'm sorry, interracial audiences as well. By 1910, there were white networks of churches and clergy within the denomination. And Mason licensed several white Pentecostal ministers. And in 1914, he preached at the founding meeting of the Assemblies of God. But unfortunately, shortly after that time, white Pentecostal ministers left the Church of God in Christ, and many of them went into the Assemblies of God, with Church of God in Christ remaining predominantly black and Assemblies of God mainly white. But Mason continued to work to build the Church of God in Christ. 
He established international ministries along with U.S. churches. Many, uh, I should say, many uh, Church of God in Christ missionaries went to Africa. In 1907, there were 10 Church of God in Christ churches, uh, but by the time of Mason's death in 1961, the denomination had spread to every state in the U.S. and to many foreign countries. It had a membership of more than 400,000 who supported more than 4,000 churches. By 2016, the denomination had 5.5 million members in 60 countries around the world. And the National Council of Churches ranks it as the fifth largest Christian uh, Protestant, not just Pentecostal, but among all Protestant denominations, uh, it is the fifth largest denomination in the United States. Organized in the South and having a predominantly black membership, Church of God in Christ has had a long history in advancing civil rights. During World War I, the FBI opened a file on Charles Mason and conducted surveillance on him because of his pacifism during the war. Mason taught Church of God in Christ members against going to war, mainly because he was against black Americans being called to fight a war overseas for freedom and then coming home and being treated as second-class citizens and being lynched even in their uniforms because of racism. During the 1940s and 50s, Bishop Mason often invited the white elected officials of the city of Memphis to the International Holy Convocation on Civic Night. Now, again, some Kojic congregations had white leaders and members even through the civil rights era. During the height of the civil rights movement, Kojic ministers and congregations played host to many significant events. In 1955, Emmett Till's funeral was held at Robert's Temple Church of God in Christ in Chicago, Illinois. Mamie Till Mobley, Emmett Till's mother, was a member of St. Paul Church of God in Christ, led by then-elder Louis Henry Ford, who would later become the presiding bishop of the denomination who officiated the service. On February 21, 1965, when Malcolm X was assassinated and the family needed a place for his funeral, no major black church or facility would open their doors for the service. Finally, Church of God in Christ Bishop Alvin A. Childs of the Faith Temple Church of God in Christ, later renamed Childs Memorial in his honor, was the clergyman who finally opened his doors. Malcolm X's funeral was held in Harlem, New York City at Faith Temple Church of God in Christ. Now also, Holy Temple Church of God in Christ in Memphis, Tennessee, was the first church to open its doors to black striking sanitation workers organizing to demand better working conditions and higher pay. And if you recall uh, the different um, uh, parts of this, this church history series where we've talked about the centrality of the black church for the black American community, the churches are the anchor. The churches are the source of nearly everything it's, it's the source of stability and forward movement for black Americans 
throughout the United States. And here you can see these churches are playing a very pivotal role to enable black Americans to gain uh, civil rights. Finally, in April, uh, on April 3rd, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I've Been to the Mountaintop speech at Mason Temple Church of God in Christ, named after Charles Mason, in Memphis the day before he was assassinated on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. Um, so this concludes all uh, of my presentation for the Salvation Army and Church of God in Christ. Um, any questions? <clears throat>